Hey guys, this is Laura Mayer. I'm the director of production here at Panoply. And before we get to the show, I want to ask you an important favor. Here at Panoply, we're trying to learn more about our podcast listeners. That's you guys. We want you to tell us about the podcasts that you enjoy and how often you listen to them. So we created a survey that takes just a couple of minutes to complete. If you fill it out, you'll help Panoply make great podcasts about the things that you love and things you didn't even know you loved. To fill out the survey, just go to panoply.fm survey, or you can click the link we've provided in the show notes for this episode. That's panoply.fm survey, or click the link in the show notes. Thanks. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. Today's show is about the black radical tradition in sports, a political tradition that exists outside the mainstream discourse, but has always been a part of the political soil of this country. It is a tradition that is resurfacing today with the protests and words of 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick, and it is a tradition that has its roots with our guest today, former Cleveland Brown, Walter Beach. I am black in attitude, I'm black in behavior, belief, and thought. I am an African in spirit. I accept and acknowledge the fact of my African self being intuitively. I have developed the cognitive strength to function as a black man in America. I must decide what my relationship to racism will be. I am a man of peace and love. I have an unbridled love for black people. Mm. And this is from ancient Kemet, Egypt statement called Lafusea. I do not speak falsely for I am great. I do not act lightly for I have weight. I am not untrue for I am the balance. And I do not swerve for I am the standard. And Dave, that's the final statement, the standard. I'm just telling you what my standard is. I speak for no other man. Now, who is Walter Beach? Well, he turns 84 in January, and he was part of the Cleveland Browns team, which won the NFL championship in 1964, a team led by Walter's lifelong friend, the legendary Jim Brown. Walter Beach was also part of a group of black athletes who publicly supported Muhammad Ali's refusal to be inducted into the United States Army as a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War. In fact, he is in the iconic photo of Jim Brown, Kareem, Bill Russell, Muhammad Ali, and other pro athletes who lined up in solidarity with Ali at what is known as the Ali Summit. This is a deep thinker, author of the book Consider This. This is Dr. Walter Beach. What was your response when you first saw Colin Kaepernick and the anthem protests against police violence? It was refreshing. And at the same time, it was disappointing. The disappointment was not in Kaepernick. The disappointment was in the fact that people uh, wanted to uh, bring some violence and introduce a lot of other things into a situation and not address. And we've all heard it before. You always shoot the messenger mm. to listen to the message. So uh, people are not 
really in opposition to the message. They're in opposition to the messenger. And they don't like the way you protest. I remember in 1964 when I was in Cleveland and with the Glenville and Huff riots, people said, well, you know, people don't riot. Civilized people don't riot. I said, no, the Boston Tea Party wasn't about rioting. It was some civilized Caucasians resisting oppression. Now, that's all right in this country. So what Cabernacle was doing is not all right. What Cabernacle was doing is perfectly right. He did what any man is supposed to do when you're violating. You violate me, my family, or my people. I'm going to resist. Mm. Now, you can do what you want, what you have to do, but I must resist. Schopenhauer said it's an unquestionable crime when a man betrays himself. That no other man has any duty to or responsibility for him. If I allow you to violate me and I consent, there's a Latin term, volenti non feet injury. No wrong is done to one who consents. Mm. And that's what struggle's about for me. Now, today, the NFL, by my analysis, seems uneasy about these protests, almost like they're allowing them, but scared of the backlash if they don't. What was it like when you were with the Browns? Uh, the owner of the team at the time was Art Modell. How did he treat you? Well... On Sundays, when I was out there doing what I was supposed to do, it was cool. <laughs> you know, he, he, uh, that's the only reason he kept me on the team. At least I was operational adequate in doing my job, you know. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, it was, it, it was all right. But uh, uh, the incident on an airplane on the way to Los Angeles, at that time to play uh, the Los Angeles Rams, there was a book I was reading. He came down the aisles and he said, you know, how you doing, Walt? I'm doing fine, man. How you doing? He said, what you reading? I said, I'm reading this book, Message to the Black Man by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. He said, I don't want you to read that book. I said, okay. And he went on. He came back about 20, 30 minutes later. He said, you, you reading that book? I said, yes. He said, exact words. I thought I told you I didn't want you to read that book. I said, you did. But I thought it was a joke. He said, no, it's not a joke. I said, it's got to be because a man cannot tell another man what to read. Now, when we get to Los Angeles, give me my airplane ticket back to Michigan. But I'm on the contract to play football. I ain't under no contract for you to tell me what to read. Mm. I don't value that. My value to me is to have some integrity, to be a a human being and treat other human beings like I like to be treated. That's why most people get confused when they ask Jim Brown and Wooten and Bobby Mitchell and Willie Davis all this about the thing with Ali. Football is what I did. That wasn't who I was. Boxing is what Ali did. That wasn't who he was. So therefore, they said, man, weren't you concerned about you losing a job? Losing what job? What job is more important than me being a a forthright, upstanding human being? You tell me the job. Mm. Once you cross that line, 
you're in trouble mm. because then the line disappears. Then all of a sudden you'll do anything to make some money or anything to get a job. You got to have a line. That's what the standard is about. The story you just told about being on the plane and about saying that you would sooner quit than have the owner of the team, Art Modell, tell you what to read, it actually sounds like a precursor of the famous reason why Jim Brown walked away from football because Art Modell said, you better come back right now from filming The Dirty Dozen in Europe or I'm going to fine you every day you miss training camp. And Jim Brown said, that's actually so disrespectful. I would sooner walk away from the game at age 29 at the top of my peak than have to endure being treated like something less than human. Yeah, well, you know, Jim was, of course, the mighty voice on the Browns. And Jim was a man of integrity. But he he speaks about how he's influenced by you, about how he was influenced by you in that locker room, in his thought. Well, we were were good friends. See, Jim... I'm going to share something with you. Jim and I got head respect. If you know anything about the game and about practice, we was in training, training camp. And that particular afternoon, we was having what they call no contact. You just run, come up to everybody, everybody get in their positions and kind of lean into their positions, but no real physical contact. So I come up as the cornerback to close, actually to try to make a tackle. And Jim come full span and ran right over me, threw a big forearm all up in my head and knocked me down and ran over. And everybody thought it was a joke, but me. So the next time he came by, I go all out and I tackle him. And I don't know what kind of program you got, but when I tackled him, everybody, all of the coaches, and Art Modell and everybody called me a bunch of names and asked me, what the F are you doing? And I said, man, what you talking about? I said, I'm not going to let nobody run over me. And this is when I had the most respect for Jim Brown. Jim Brown said, what do you think a man is supposed to do when somebody's trying to run over him? He said he's supposed to defend himself and respond. So Jim was testing me, but Jim also knew that if he took shelter in that prima donna status that they were putting on him, then they had taken his power too. Mm, Because they had separated him from the group. That's right. They're taking his power. And Jim said, I don't need nobody to defend me. I defend me. I'm in my household right now with my wife. And she'll tell you from the moment I left her, I don't call no police if somebody's coming into my house. I am the police. Wow. You know, speaking of Jim Brown, there was this tremendous picture this past week of Colin Kaepernick and former NBA player Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. Yeah, Raouf, yeah. Yeah, he's a, a conscious person. And he last played in the NBA in the late 90s. And they were holding up a big picture of the Ali Summit. How does that feel to know it still has so much resonance for people today, 50 years later? Oh, it it feels great, man. Raul, let let me say this. I knew about Raul 
We know about the people. I'm talking about black athletes. They know who's who. So all you have to do is to say, look, man, I'm proud to stand next to somebody like Kaepernick. Because mm-hmm. I'm not scared. I'm not afraid. And one of the characteristics that's put into people, and I'm not just talking about this on, on a racial level, is fear. And you're scared you're going to lose your job, and you just saw somebody molest or put their hands on a woman in a disrespectful way, and you won't say anything because you don't want to lose your job. Mm. When she asked you to say you knew this was sexual harassment, and you wouldn't say anything. And these kind of human beings, you got to address that. Because they're not going to change you, man. Whoever you think they are, you know, that was Maya Angelou said, people tell you who they are, believe them. <laughs> <laughs> they tell you who they are by their behavior, you know, you believe them. They ain't going to change no, no, suddenly. That ain't going to change. I want to go back to uh, the Ali Summit, that tremendous coming together of all of these great athletes to support Muhammad Ali at that particular moment. A lot of athletes today are protesting, and apparently they're communicating with each other over text message. What was the value, though, of coming together? What can you say to these 21st century athletes about the importance of not just communicating, but actually physically coming together. Right. Yeah, that's very important. I mean, you can text and communicate and two or three of you can get together, but you got to put together a collective group that's going to resist whatever it is you identify to resist. And there has to be some commitment. My philosophy, they said the couple of guys that kneeled with Kaepernick lost their endorsements and a couple of guys got cut or released. Hey, man, that's what's supposed to happen. Mm. They're supposed to cut you if you don't follow their standards. They're supposed to drop their endorsement if you don't follow their standards. But you should have the courage to accept that or otherwise Put your hand on your heart and sing the Star Spangled Banner. But if you don't put your heart on your hand and stay and sing the Star Spangled Banner, then you have to know what the enemy going to bring to you. And you have to be willing to accept that. That's the courage that Jim was trying to say. Ali had courage. And Dave, you know this as well as most people. I got a magazine, had the entire life history of Muhammad Ali had one paragraph in that book about Ali resisting the draft. People didn't love Ali. People didn't love Martin Luther King. So when they put you on stamps and give you all that praise, mild and general tones of racist do not imply a change in uh, character. It's the nature. I call it the sting of the scorpion. The Buddha takes the scorpion and the scorpion stings him. And if the scorpion falls in the water and the Buddha takes the scorpion out and the scorpion stings him. That goes on for several times. And they ask the Buddha, say, why do you keep doing this? Scorpion's going to sting you. He said, it's in the nature of the scorpion to sting. But it's my nature to take him out of the water. That's what life's about, man. That all that other 
stuff, but I know it feels good. And I live in a nice house and got a nice car and stuff, you know. But none of that's going to take more precedence in my life than to be a decent human being. I love you. I treat you. And I deal with you. And you are a Caucasian. But my assessment of all that is, man, is that racism is a virus. It's something learned. So if it's been learned, it can be unlearned. And if it's a virus, it can be cured. So you've never demonstrated any of those characteristics in our relationship. So that's why you'd be welcome in my home, you and your family, because I know what your nature is, man. Well, and and you'd obviously be welcome in mine. Is it upsetting or is it gratifying that this new generation of athletes have to be involved in this fight against racist police violence? Is it upsetting that this still exists in our society and still needs to be fought? Or is it more gratifying because it shows that the fight still continues and that people aren't going to just take this? Yeah, well, it's, it's a combination of both. Now, which one do you want me to start? I'll start with the satisfaction. Please. It's rewarding and satisfying to know that people haven't been deceived. People understand the true nature of things the past. Very exciting and beneficial to see the young men step up and say, look, I see what this is, and I really want to uh, enjoy a better way of life. Now, the other side of the coin, those who wrestle with and say, and, and I think I mentioned this to you uh, about Black Lives Matters, and then they say all lives matter. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many bones I got in my body. So all of my bones matter. But if I break my ankle, the ankle bone gets more attention than the other bones. Now, am I saying that the other bones don't matter? No, that's absurd. That's trying to keep that same paradigm going. So I don't want no one talking to me about blue lives matter and all lives matter. And I'm involved in a situation right now to do some training for the police department. Dave, I carry with me a shield from my father, who was a deputy sheriff in Pontiac, Michigan, in Oakland County. I carry a picture with him in my car and his shield. My father asked me, with the chief of police, he said, we want you, when I got out of the Air Force, we want you to join the Pontiac Police Department. Came and sat at my kitchen table, my father, the chief of police. And I asked them one question. I said, if my mother breaks the law, do I have to arrest her? And my dad laughed, and the chief of police laughed. They said, why are you, saying, why are you trying to be funny? You know if she breaks the law, you have to arrest her. And I said this to my father. I said, Daddy, then I can't be no policeman because mm. I'm not going to arrest my mother. In fact, I got some friends out there I ain't going to arrest. Mm. So therefore, I'm not going to be no policeman. I told you, man, I was really, I was raised and I have a standard that I live by. So I'm not going to violate that standard. So rather than to be a policeman, I said, I won't be one if I can't arrest my mother. So those who are saying they're good policemen, they shouldn't be good policemen if they can't arrest the ones who violate the law because they're policemen. Mm. That's my thought. 
So I don't want nobody talking to me about there are some good policemen. If there are some good policemen and you see a bad shooter, what are your good policemen supposed to do? He's supposed to file charges against the policeman that broke the law. No, but what do they do? They form the blue line. Man, that 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 tells you where we are. That's what I'm saying, man. I, I, I deal with this metaphysics. I know what the words and the languages mean. You're a moral and ethical human being, and you're going to see someone roll up on a 12-year-old and shoot him with a toy gun in a state where you got open carry. Don't justify shooting a 12-year-old with a toy gun. Don't rationalize and find some way to say that's okay. What kind of society and culture is this? And you mad at Kaepernick for not kneeling when something says, and I don't know if most people understand what the next third line is, when that song talks about the hireling. The hireling was the people during that particular period that was being hired to fight war. And the slaves, no refuge for the hireling or the slaves from the grave. Right. No refuge for the hireling and the slave from the grave. They're telling you, man, look, we don't even care. I don't want to go off on that because that's Michael Jackson. Jackson, Michael Jackson got a song out. They don't care about us. Yeah. And if you watch the video, yeah, he's all over the world talking about the wretches of the earth. Yep, he ain't just talking about black folks in the United States. Yeah, a lot of it was filmed in a in a favela uh, in Rio, You're right in South America. That's right, very powerful. I was in that favela, uh, yeah, and and the people erected their own statue of Michael Jackson that overlooks the the city from their favela. There's this line of attack against Kaepernick about him being too young, even though he's 28 years old. And I was hoping you could take us back to the Ali Summit. Tell us, how old were you and what stands out from that experience? I was one of the oldest rookies. I was 30 years old when I went into the National Football League. So um, there's two things I think about when, I, when people talk about too young. That's all based on incubation. I was in India. I spent two years in an ashram in India. and Before playing in the NFL? Yeah, 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 before, yeah, before playing in the NFL. After you got out of the, the Air Force? <laughs> yeah. So you went Air Force, India, NFL. Not your typical path to the league. <laughs> right. So what happened in India, I never will forget it, a friend of mine named Jewel Harris, who was a Buddhist monk, Jules and I was in New Delhi, and we wanted to go to Kathmandu. And the taxi driver said, well, I want you to introduce this, this individual who will take you up there and you can stay at his dad's houseboat. And this was about 1,000 to 1,200 miles away. And the cab driver brought a nine-year-old boy in. And the nine-year-old boy gave us all the information about his father's houseboat in Kathmandu that sat on a lake. 
he was 1,200 miles from his family and his house, his dad and his mother and his siblings, telling us about his dad's houseboat. That was his job. Nine years old. Was he too young? And anytime I hear that too young, I always think of Nat King Cole. They try to tell us we're too young. Kathmandu, a thousand miles away, and a nine-year-old, based on what his family, his responsibility, his family was, was to go to New Delhi and bring some customers so that we can continue to live. So you're going to tell me that Kaepernick is too young to know. One, you're saying he's not capable. He don't have the capacity to cognitively understand. And sometimes it ain't about the capacity to cognitively understand. Sometimes it's just about the capacity to be sensitive and feel. Mm. Walter Beach, I can't think of a better note to end on. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. No, Dave, always appreciate you because I know you appreciate me. Definitely. Times a thousand. I deal with how Jim and I usually sign off. Jim always said, man, I respect your mind. And I said, I respect your mind, too. And that's what I'm that's what I'm saying to you. I respect your mind, man. I respect your mind, too. OK, be, be, be well, sir. Give right. my best to Gail. I will. Peace and love. Do the same to your family. Peace and love. Peace and love. So people can get an image of you, because I mentioned before that, you know, you turn 84 years old in January. The last time I was with you, you were doing just this remarkable Tai Chi out in the sun. I mean, you're in amazing physical shape. Can you just explain to folks about like Tai Chi Gong? And I know that's such a central part of your life. Tai Chi is a meditative art. It's also a martial art. I do not choose to fight. But if it is your will, I have no other choice. And that's the way I look at my life in the United States of America. I don't choose to address racism, but racism exists. So I have no choice. Mm. That's just me. you know. And that's what my father always taught me, man. You stand for who you are. You accept the consequences and you accept the responsibility. You cannot benefit from anything, Dave, and not be responsible. Thank you so much to Walter Beach. Look, there is continuity with the ideas and tradition of Mr. Beach and the ideas and tradition of Colin Kaepernick and that they are introducing a set of ideas into the body politic from the platform of sports that is outside what passes for mainstream discourse in this country. And that gets to my choice words this week, which is about Colin Kaepernick and the elections. Colin Kaepernick is on a mission to make this country face the reality of racist police violence one anthem protest at a time. That is his quest. His mission is not to make sure that Hillary Clinton becomes president, and it is not to keep liberals who have supported his right to protest happy. 
Kaepernick was asked by reporters what he thought of last Monday night's debate between Clinton and Trump. And this is what he said. He said, it was embarrassing to watch that these are our two candidates. Both are proven liars, and it almost seems like they're trying to debate who's less racist, end quote. Look, like it or not, this statement is actually an apt reflection of the view of millions of young voters, particularly young voters of color. This demographic looks at these two candidates and wonders why they are being asked to choose between a raving bigot and someone whose platform seems to be little more than this guy over there is a raving bigot. What Colin Kaepernick is doing is he is using his new platform to reject the narrow partisan framework that passes for politics. It is bracing, it is brave, and again, it is upsetting many of the right people. Bill Maher, who is still seen as something of a liberal hero for reasons unfathomable given his penchant for bigotry and sexism, tweeted, Colin Kaepernick is an idiot. I support his protest, but stick to what you know kneeling and interceptions, and then look up false equivalency, end quote. Look, Bill should stick to what he knows, Islamophobia and blithely defending the deaths of thousands of people in the Muslim world. And for the record, Mars' tweet just came a week after he passionately defended Kaepernick, saying what people died and fought for was for his right to protest. And that's election year liberalism in a nutshell. Protest the anthem, the country, police violence, and the absence of freedom in the land of the free. But if you criticize Hillary, we will bury you. To Kaepernick's credit, it's not like he's holding press conferences to give his hot take on the debates, like some kind of wannabe pundit. He was asked in the locker room for his thoughts, and he could have easily have deflected or even said, I'm focused on this police violence issue. Instead, he spoke his truth, even though there was apparently a 49ers PR person right there next to him trying to get him to stop talking to reporters, which is a hilarious scene. If you think that the number one issue in the fight against racism in this country right now is stopping Donald Trump, then argue that point. But the worst thing that Hillary's supporters could do is to call Colin Kaepernick an idiot because he represents the very demographic that Democrats need to turn out in November to secure the White House. Colin Kaepernick has the right to his opinion on the flag, and he has the right to his opinion about the elections. Instead of blasting him, maybe people should try to understand why someone would look at this country, look at the cases of Terrence Crutcher, Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, Terrence Sterling, and Keith Lamont Scott, and so many other human beings who have become hashtags, and try to understand why the solutions on that debate stage would taste like the thinnest possible gruel, utterly unsatisfying to young people whose appetite in 2016 is for bold change and some semblance of justice. Actually, I've got some more choice words now as well about an incident that took place on Sunday during the NFL game between the Detroit Lions and the Chicago Bears. And it shows the stakes of building an anti-racist movement right now that is rooted in the world of sports. Let me explain. After a rough week for the right wing where their candidate of choice self-immolated on live television repeatedly, talking about Donald Trump in the debates, 
the alt-right and their assorted white nationalist-affiliated websites were given a sick reason to smile on Sunday. They were thrilled because a person ran out onto an NFL field in a gorilla suit with All Lives Matter written across his chest and dropped the guns across the back. The person in the suit happened to be a 31-year-old black man named Angelo Graham, and the Breitbart Brigade immediately wrote an article titled, Jock Journalists Condemn All Lives Matter Protester as Racist, Then Cops Take Off His Gorilla Mask. In the piece, they wrote, The Chicago police charged Tennessean Angelo Graham with criminal trespassing. No law yet exists to punish boy-who-cried-racism journalists, end quote. Look, leaving aside their disturbing quest to punish journalists, there is something more important worth commenting upon. We don't know Graham's motivations for this stunt, but we do know that the right on social media first embraced the image of an all-lives-matter gorilla and then had an extra laugh at it being a black person who took the field. And then, it is true, a lot of those liberal sports writers who were outraged at someone running onto the field in the gorilla outfit all of a sudden went silent and didn't write about this issue as if they were cowed by the fact that it happened to be a black person under the suit. Look, all of this is actually a stark reminder of why it is so critical for NFL players to continue their anthem protests against police violence. For those new to this lingo, All Lives Matter is their clarion call assertion that black lives, in fact, do not matter. It is aimed at enraging anyone who is working to change a setup where black lives are systematically seen as expendable by police. As for drop the guns, that is a callback to the grotesque Trumpian vision about what reality is like in black America, especially in Chicago. Just an endless dystopian hellscape of black-on-black violence, a phrase in and of itself that has long been a shrill racist dog whistle. The argument is that police should be lionized as the one force holding back a flood of self-inflicted black genocide. Look, all of this is racist sophistry. Rhetoric that many of us thought had been dead and buried decades ago. Other than the occasional mail-order pamphlets, it was an approach to race that was believed to have been amputated from the body politic. Many thought that at worst, we were living in an age, to use Michelle Alexander's phrase, of colorblind racism. But it's back, and it's not a dog whistle, it's an air raid siren. This is why it is so critical for players to keep protesting during the anthem. Every protest is an assertion of humanity that directly confronts the legions of fans who see players as something less than human. It is a statement for everyone who thinks that black lives matter on the field and in their fantasy leagues, but not when the pads come off. If their protests provoke this kind of response, it only proves why it is necessary. Look, this is a sport where the players destroy their bodies and their minds on a week-in, week-out basis. The more fans can disassociate the destruction of black bodies from the black lives beneath the helmet, the angrier they will be at any assertion of their humanity and the more accepting they will be of stunts like that of Mr. Graham. Yes, again, this is one incident, but it also represents the first drop of something far more corrosive. 
For years, we have seen similar incidents in European soccer. As monkey noises were made at black players or bananas were tossed at them from the stands, and as players had to launch their own anti-racist initiatives because the leagues weren't doing anything, the self-satisfied refrain here in the United States has been, well, we don't see that happen over here. Well, now we do. It not only can happen here, it did happen here, no matter Angelo Graham's motivations. One incident but one moment that makes clear how necessary it is for all players to assert that black lives indeed do matter. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. This week it goes to Antonio Cromartie, who was actually just released by the Indianapolis Colts. Was he released because of what he did in London, or was it because he got repeatedly burned in the game by Allen Robinson? That is unclear, but it doesn't change the fact of what he did in London, which is he took a knee and raised a fist on foreign soil in solidarity with the Kaepernick protests. And afterwards he said, everyone wants to say all lives matter, but until black lives start to matter, all lives don't matter. That's what people need to start looking at. When you take a knee, you're talking about everything that goes on in this country, end quote. Look, Cromartie is right now out of a job, but that doesn't change what he did. It's really important. And it's not just important because it was another anthem protest on national television. It was important because there is a long history, especially during the Cold War, of black athletes being sent to other countries to project a vision of the United States about race relations that is just not real. And so by doing that, Antonio Cromartie really, really pointedly joins the tradition of Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who raised their fist at the 1968 games in Mexico City, and then afterwards released a statement that said, why should we run in Mexico City only to crawl home? And a second Just Stand Up Award goes to the East Carolina University Marching Band which knelt during the national anthem, even though they were booed during halftime. And then they had the game censored by ESPN Fayetteville. They didn't air the game in their own quote-unquote protest of the action of the East Carolina University marching band. Although I will say that a media erasing a protest is not actually a protest. That is a scary reminder of the limitations of the free speech that we had. And... There's a professor now at East Carolina University named Tracy Tootin who said her response to the protest is to show up armed to school. And she said, if they're going to exercise their First Amendment rights, then I'm going to exercise my Second Amendment rights. This teacher, by the way, if you look at her bio on Twitter, it says, Proud Ein Rander, which I don't know if that's something anybody should necessarily be proud of. But in and of itself, it shows you how brave these East Carolina marchers are. They're facing down not only the big media of their hometown, but they're facing down armed professors just to say that violence is wrong. And now, some messages to the Edge of Sports hotline. That's 401-426-3343, 401-426-EDGE. Hi, my name is Brad. I'm a high school teacher in Spokane, Washington, and I wanted to say thanks. I just finished listening to the podcast with Dr. John Carlos, and 
Uh, it was brilliant and provocative and right to the main point that that I want my students to get. And I'm somebody who grew up on sports. I was born in 1960. Never thought of it as as politically charged. And um, now in my late adulthood, I'm understanding some of the best ways to understand the world and engage the world and take a stand for what matters in the world are happening in the world of sports. And Colin Kaepernick and the Indiana Fever and the Castlemont football team and all the folks who are understanding what Dr. Carlos did, what Muhammad Ali did. Brent Musburger needs to come on and and face what Dr. Carlos said, face himself in the mirror from 1968. I'm glad that you call out the stuff that you call out because it's time to not put up with this anymore. Thanks so much, Dave. Yo, thank you so much, Brad, for that. And the reason why I really want to thank you is because, as you said, you're a teacher. And I am such a big believer that sports is an underused tool in our classrooms as a way to teach about history, politics, oppression, movements, resistance. It's all there as a great lens. And you know what I've learned from years of doing this is that it's not just the sport heads who connect with it. Oftentimes it's the people who hate sports and you know they've been alienated from sports their entire lives and they love the fact that they can connect with sports by talking about things like women's history, LGBT history. Thank you for that call and a big recommendation to everybody out there. Seriously, I'm not asking you to buy my book because I don't not that cheesy, but go to your local library and see that they carry A People's History of Sports in the United States, which is a book that I wrote, and see if you could use that history as a way to reach your students. Straight up, we want to hear from all the teachers out there who are using this podcast as a teaching tool in the classroom. I know you're out there. I hear from you on social media. We'd love to get some audio from you explaining how it is you use the podcast in the classroom to reach your students. Call us at 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. And if there's any way that we can help you develop this curriculum to reach your students, just let us know. Hi, my name is Richard in Toronto, Canada. I'm responding to the uh, poll question of the week. Yes, absolutely, positively. If you can get Brent Musburger on in the next couple of weeks or even in the next session to follow that fantastic podcast with John Carlos, please do so. I'm 100% in support of getting Brent Musburger on to explain himself. Thank you, and keep up the good work. Thank you, Richard. I want to respond directly about getting Brent Musburger on the show. First and foremost, everybody should know that we have reached out to Brent Musburger's people. We've reached out to ESPN. We have put in the request. We have rolled out the carpet. We've made very clear that this is not going to be the sort of interview where we hang up on him as soon as he calls in. We actually want to speak to him and ask him the questions. Did he realize the severity of what he wrote in 1968 in calling Tommy Smith and John Carlos Blackskin stormtroopers? Has he ever felt regret over that? And does he realize the kind of pain that it's caused both of those two men, pain that they still carry almost 50 years after the day? Hello, my name is Mark Erickson. Um, I was listening to the podcast last week with uh, Dr. John Carlos, and I actually heard Dr. John Carlos on a Democracy Now! show back in 2008 when their gesture from Mexico City was 40 years old, and I heard about the, the statue in San Jose State University, and I 
I, I, I knew the story actually of, of why Peter Norman said, no, I don't want to be there. And I was taking a road trip up the Pacific coast and I had to go there. I had to go to San Jose State University and stand where Peter Norman stood because I was so moved by what they did. Wow, thank you so much, Mark, for that. Thank you so much for the support. We love all our listeners. Please call in 401-426-3343. The question of the week is, what do you think about imperfect messengers? When you heard that Antonio Cromartie was the person taking a knee and raising his fist, did it disgust you because of his personal history, or did you find that some of the criticism of Antonio Cromartie because of his personal life was profoundly hypocritical, given the fact that some of the biggest right-wing blowhards out there are people like Newt Gingrich, who served uh, his wife with divorce papers while she was in a hospital bed? Just throwing that out there as one example. But I'm just really curious what people think about the idea of imperfect messengers. Or just call in 401-426-3343 and give us your thoughts on Walter Beach. I'm guessing a lot of folks out there had never heard of Walter Beach before, but he's turning 84 years old in January. He's an incredible human being. And I'm just curious what people thought about what he had to say. Thank you to everybody who joined us here this week on Edge of Sports. Thank you to my producer, Dan Bloom. Thank you so much to our production associate, David Tigabu. Thank you, Dr. Walter Beach, for making the time for us this week. You can contact me, Dave Zirin, at any time over Twitter at Edge of Sports, or you can email edgeofsports at slate.com. And listen, you core listeners of this show, you are the reason why we have a show. So what I'm asking you to do is please tell a friend. Please rate us on iTunes, put it up on Facebook, Twitter, or the social media app of your choice. I'm Dave Zirin. We are out of here. Peace.